0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's going to be a hard lesson this morning. Whenever we get to a place of Having to mark a person because of decisions they've made, uh, to not listen to God or to his people, and those decisions have escalated to this point. It's extremely emotionally exhausting, (laughs) difficult to talk about. I've gone back and forth on bringing attention to it, but I've been in anguish about the situation with the Adamis for longer than uh, just the most recent string of interactions that have made it more clear where they're really at. And I think whenever we get to a point like this, it's important to kind of reflect on what we're doing and how do we get to a place like this So in the past, I've tried to give lessons in situations like this. You know, why do we do what we do? And uh, what does the Bible say about a situation like this? But this morning, I I more want to think about how do we get here? How do we get to a place? uh, How does a person get to a place where they're closed off? Where God's word no longer has the kind of power that it should have? where the appeals of brethren no longer has the power that it should have. What's the path to a hardened heart? You'll notice I have some Spanish translations on the board. Uh, M- Miguel's been attending here and visiting with us. He doesn't speak English. and I do wanna say something in Spanish to him really quick, uh, just about the nature of the lesson. But I'll have Spanish on the board throughout the lesson. Uh, Miguel, uh, Dios nos advierte que endurecerá nuestros corazones cuando nos neguemos a uh, escuchar su palabra y obedecerle. Satanás quiere que tengamos un corazón endurecido y si no estamos en guardia podemos tomar deci- decisiones que nos alejen de Dios. En esta lección voy a en- enseñar Sobre tres mandamientos que Dios nos da para mantener nuestro corazón puro. Satanás, no quiero que nos amamos unos o a otros como Dios nos dice, o que nos comuniquemos honestamente unos con otros como Dios nos dice, o que seamos perdonadores como Dios nos dice. So that was a lot because I was trying to give just a little outline of the lesson and the points that will be in the lesson. Um, But I wanna wanna bring up just as an introductory point, some things that Paul the Apostle said, uh, just to kind of introduce the importance of, you know, understanding the signs of a path someone is on and dealing with things quickly, uh, both on our response to a person, we need to be quick and not be naive when somebody is showing signs of moving away from God and moving away from his will. But we also need to not be naive with ourselves. So you notice to the uh, Ephesus elders who you would imagine are very stable people. Notice he says, and in, in, uh, this is not Ephesians 4, 28 through 31. This is Acts uh, chapter 20. I'm not sure what happened there with my verse reference at the bottom. Anyway, in Acts chapter 20, Paul talking to the Ephesus elders says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. So again, look at yourselves, but look at others as well, of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. I find this very convicting. I want you to imagine if my relationship with you, if literally every night and every morning, I appealed to you with tears about the seriousness of our faith and our relationship with God. Imagine every Sunday morning with tears, I'm saying, please take this seriously. This is so serious what we're doing. There is very real danger. You imagine Paul could honestly say night and day with tears. He never stopped admonishing them. I don't communicate that seriously the urgency of our relationship with God, but it is that urgent. And we need to be very serious-minded and wise about the fact that there is a battle where the devil is trying to lure us away from God, to trap us in pride and selfish thinking, to blind us from God and his word. And again, we need to be on the alert. Romans 16, Paul can, this is some of the concluding thoughts of the letter, He says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus or Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, notice this. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, people who are not on guard, who are not being watchful or vigilant. The report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And this idea of being innocent in what is evil and wise in what is good, wisdom in doing what is good recognizes it needs to be diligently protected. We can't just coast by. We have to listen to what God says. We've got to fight for what God says because God is worth fighting for. People follow patterns, and we need to be aware of signs. When Eve and I recently went to Orlando, Florida, to visit with my parents there, um, they don't live there, they're just, they visited Orlando, invited us to visit with them, Anyway, there was an outdoor pool, and at the outdoor pool, there were three lifeguards who were watching the pool. And these are not the kind of lifeguards that just sit in a chair and overlook the pool. All three of them were marching back and forth, looking at the pool very resolutely, very vigilantly. They were moving their head around, watching around, even though you're looking around and everything's fine. You know, nobody's panicking. And yet all three of these lifeguards are vigilantly, they are just literally stomping back and forth. And you're like, what's the big deal? You know, everyone's, everyone's okay. Nobody's in a panic. But the whole time, nonstop, they are marching back and forth, walkie-talkies, communicating with each other. Well, when Eve and I were sitting on the side of the pool, our feet in the water, we weren't swimming, there was a kid playing with someone and nothing bad happened. But the kid was splashing a little bit and it was obvious he couldn't swim. He wasn't wearing a life jacket and one of the lifeguards had his eye on this kid before anything happened. The kid started splashing a little bit. The lifeguard blew his whistle, told him he needs to get back to the side of the pool and stop, and he did. Why would he do that? You know, nothing bad happened. The kid wasn't drowning. It's a sign of trouble. Water is fun, but it's also very dangerous. And lifeguards are trained to look for signs to take that danger seriously. Or even a kid who's laughing, there's the, kid, the person the kid was playing with, nobody was thinking there was any danger, but a lifeguard is there to protect from danger that is very real, and they are trained to look for signs. We need to not be naive. We are in a place where there is very real danger. People follow patterns, and even in the Old Testament, God was very clear in communicating, here's what it looks like when you start drifting away from me. And there's going to be a pattern. And if you're thinking about it, you're going to see it, and it's going to be obvious. And it's the same for us. It's no different now. People make decisions that follow a pattern. When someone falls away, it's always a very consistent process. It may look slightly different with different people and the sins that a person may be involved in. But generally, it's always the same. We've had to disfellowship publicly from three people in the last few years, and every one of those situations has been exactly the same in terms of patterns. What I want to do this morning is look at three things that are not the be-all, end-all, but they are certainly three things that genuinely do really matter and are very fundamental to our faith. There's nothing profound about them, but they are three things that I think a person will betray and abandon to harden their hearts, and it certainly will lead a person down a path to a hardened heart. But it really is as simple as this, abiding in God's love. That's all it is. You know, our faith is not complicated. We abide in God's love, we're safe. When we start letting Satan harden our hearts or we're no longer walking in love, God is very clear, we are departing from the safety of his protection. We must abide in his love. God clearly tells us what it means to abide in his love. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, well this, there's one more point I wanted to make in the introduction. I know it's jarring when I do that. I do that a lot. And even I've talked about that when I say we're moving on, I'm like, wait, there's one more thing. I know that's jarring, but really quick. In the Proverbs, it says in chapter three or chapter five, guard your heart with all diligence for from it springs all the issues of life. We're not going to talk about Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, but just in terms of introduction, look at verse 18. Where does this ignorance and darkened understanding and exclusion from God come from? He keeps kind of going deeper and deeper. So they're excluded because of the ignorance that is in them, ultimately because of the hardness of their heart. God rescues us from a hardness of heart. And fundamentally, it's a hardened heart that keeps people from seeing God and obeying him. And if we are not careful, we can go right back to having a hardened heart that makes us, once again, ignorant and calloused, to the will of God. We have to guard our hearts. We are in a battle for the condition of our hearts. Satan wants to poison our hearts and God is trying to purify our hearts and keep them open while Satan is trying to close our hearts. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Something very simple. All of these things are very fundamental. But in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, God exhorts us in Christ to prioritize and pursue a working unity and close fellowship with his people. You notice in verse 11, what are prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and apostles, what are they they given by God to do? He gave them in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of service. And what's the goal of that work? To the building up of the body. In verse 13, to attain to a greater unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to the measure and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, this fellowship protects us from being tossed around by different ideas or teachings or attitudes. And then verse 16, as we speak the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects in him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It is so critical that we listen to God in this. There is a special priority God calls us to place on our fellowship with other believers locally, a special emphasis God places there. At the beginning of chapter 4, after he's talked about the glorious things that God has done to reconcile us with himself through Jesus, he ends it with a prayer that we would just flourish and thrive and grow in the love of Christ that we would know the height depth width and length of the love of Christ to be filled up to the fullness of God in chapter 4 after all these grand ideas and this grand prayer what is the first and most important application of this chapter 4 verse 1 therefore I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called what does that look like what does that mean with all humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God designed these relationships to strengthen us. You know, the people most involved in the work of a local church are the people who understand their need and their weakness the best. You know, being, being uniquely or being intimately involved together it's not a self-righteous thing, it's not for the proud, but ironically, it's it's pride and self-righteousness that disassociates us from one another. So God designed these relationships to strengthen us, to comfort us, but also to challenge us, humble us, and convict us. If you look back in verse 15, what does it really mean to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head even Christ? You know, there may be some idealized ways that we think about that, maybe easy, convenient ways. Were relationships easy for Jesus? Were relationships convenient? Were they self-rewarding in any way whatsoever? Do we really want to grow into every aspect of Christ? Then it's going to require that we learn how to deal with relationships when they're hard. There is nothing harder than godly relationships. When you don't have reason in marriage to preserve it, because you could think, I'll just throw away this relationship. It's no big deal. It costs me nothing. There's something special about relationships with brethren how those can be divided, how they are joined together, how they are preserved. Nothing is more challenging than godly relationships. Close godly relationships, they expose us, they expose my failures and force me to deal with my sin and force me to deal with my failures. They're very humbling as I realize how quick I am to be offended, how quick I am to be bitter and angry, how disappointed I am so easily when I should instead be more merciful and patient. And they're meant to convict us. Relationships are meant to convict us. All of this strengthens our faith. But Satan can use these same things to strengthen us, to destroy us, and to harden our hearts. How does he do that? I've said before in other lessons, relationships test our hearts. And there is a goodness and a design to that. God has designed our relationships to test us. Was Jesus tested in his love for people? And yet somehow Jesus, even being crucified, his death was not his way of finally escaping the problems that come from relationships, but being able to invest even further The cross was an appeal for greater unity, not a way of dividing himself from the very people who slandered, abused, tortured, and killed him. Satan seeks to divide us through disappointments, frustrations, offenses that we experience with brethren. And again, we are going to experience these things. It is inevitable that when I serve brethren, and if I'm taking the initiative, if I'm really putting myself out there, I'm going to be disappointed. If I'm really putting myself out there, taking initiative, I'm going to get frustrated. I'm going to get offended by something said or done or not done or something I've even made up in my own mind. Maybe an expectation I've made up and not even communicated. It's inevitable. And that's okay. That pushes us. It pushes us to focus more on God's love. What has God done instead of giving up on disappointment? You know, how many, how many times a day can God be disappointed in me? My confidence is that the cross shows that that's not how God is. That God does not let himself become embittered by disappointment. He doesn't let his frustration with me make him a monster towards me. God loves me and he's trying to work things out for my good. God could be offended by so many things that I choose to do and choose not to do. Neglects of my life. But instead, God continues to renew every day his commitment towards me relationships test us and that testing is necessary to be more rooted in Christ and to know him better. Our relationships with brethren are our bridge to the depths of God's grace. If we are handling our relationships the way that God calls us to. Proverbs 18 verse 1. I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles there. Proverbs 18 verse 1. And this brings us to a warning sign when something may not be right. You know, it may not necessarily mean something's wrong, but it certainly is a warning sign. Proverbs 18, verse 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Involvement, love, community, intimacy, accountability, That's inherently and intrinsically a part of who God is and the wisdom of who he is. So when somebody begins distancing themselves from God, what fundamentally does that look like? It consistently looks like distancing from brethren. And chapter 18, verse 1 of Proverbs, why does someone do that? Is it an intellectual problem? No, people isolate themselves because they want something that if they keep themselves in God's accountability, if they let themselves be exposed to relationships that are, are humbling and convicting, well then that's going to be endangered. So to protect my desires and my own pursuits, well, it serves my interests better if I'm just not as close to the brethren. Doesn't mean that somebody is falling away because they may not be coming to assemblies. There may be something going on and there's a need for communication but consistently when people fall away, a vital part of that process is they stop showing up at assemblies and stop their communication with brethren. If there's personal studies, those stop. Um, it's very, very difficult for a person to fall away and maintain the right relationships with their brethren. And so if somebody's not here, if somebody's not showing up suddenly, think about that, reach out to them. And if if in your life you see a lack of zeal toward God's people, a person can be isolated and yet still be among people, right? There can be a closed off heart even while physically present. So isolation doesn't just mean bodily separation. Consistent signs someone is drifting from the Lord is drifting from his people as well. Ephesians 4 again, look at verse 15 and 21. This is stated twice in this little section. But communication. Ephesians 4, look at verse 15. Between being tossed around by false teachings and different schemes and different waves, uh, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects in him who is the head, even Christ. And then after all of these concepts of our salvation and what God has done, another verse 25 and uh, another fundamental application It's brought up one more time. Therefore, laying aside aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Usually how I've heard this verse talked about, and I think this is a good application, but I'm not persuaded it's the main application. Usually how I hear this talked about is if you're going to rebuke someone with the Bible, do it in love, not with like hitting them with a baseball bat and all that. I do think that's true, that when we have to speak God's word to someone, and it is corrective, that obviously needs to be done in gentleness and in love. But I don't think that's really the main part of what this is saying. Notice at the end of verse 25, for we are members of one another. Think about this. Can a body maintain its health? I mean, a physical body. Or work through problems if the body is not communicating honestly with itself. I want you to think about this quote from a medical website. In many cases, a serious illness can seemingly come out of nowhere with little to no warning. Being aware of what to look for and noticing the warning signs early on could mean the difference between life and death. Uh, My my grandfather on my mom's side, he died of colon cancer that spread all over his body. And he was completely unaware of it until... I think it was about two weeks he lost like 20 pounds all of a sudden obviously when you lose 20 pounds in two weeks something is really really wrong he went to the hospital it had already spread way too far there was no hope he died soon after that the most dangerous illnesses maybe most dangerous isn't the right word most most dangerous illnesses are those that don't communicate that they're there that they're festering that they're growing and then by the time you know about it it's too late There's two kinds of communication. There's communication where it's too late, it's already been festering for so long, and by the time you'll talk honestly, it's because you actually want to sever the relationship. You've already made up your mind, you've already gone over it, and and by the time you have the courage to say something that's resembling some honesty and openness, you're unreachable. There's a big difference between that kind of communication, which I would argue is not in love, and communication that is a genuine cry for help, Communication where you want to resolve something and work through it, even if what you're saying is emotional and hard to hear, there's a big difference between communication that is done in love to preserve unity, to work through a problem to fix it, compared to wanting to throw away relationships because it's already been going on for so long. If we want to grow as a body, we have to communicate honestly of problems. Laying aside falsehood, Let us speak truth one with another because we are members of a body. Luke 12, what I'm saying is, I guess I'll say it more clearly. Although we need to speak scripture lovingly, we also need to be honest about problems, sin, struggles, and weaknesses. And if we are not honest and transparent about those things, then we can't help each other. And we are going to die spiritually, individually. And there's very little that can be done because like cancer, that's spread all over a person's body, if it's communicated when it's already so far progressed, there may actually not be a remedy at that point. The earlier a problem can be communicated, the better it can be resolved, the more hope there is to resolve it. Luke 12, the point I want to make here is that Satan wants to trap us in a prison of fear with communication. Satan wants to trap us in a prison of fear that destroys faith. Luke 12, 1 through 7. This is after Jesus had just exposed the Pharisees and scribes. He's very clear that they're whitewashed tombs, woe to them, all that. Chapter 12, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known accordingly whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light and what you have heard whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops upon the housetops i say to you my friends do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that of no more that they can do but i will warn you whom to fear fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell yes i tell you fear him are not five sparrows sold for two cents yet not one of them is forgotten before god Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. So I want you to notice verse 2 and 3. Is there really anything as a secret sin? Did you know that there's no such thing? You know, you may hide it from people or some like serious struggle or weakness or or failure. But look at verse 2 and 3. Is it secret before God? Or but before heavenly beings? You know, I think secrecy is a lie that the devil tells us straight from hell. To, again, keep us trapped in a prison of fear. And why don't we talk about our sins when there is sin in our life? And it's, it's enslaving us. We can't get out. We just keep falling into it again and again and again. And, boy, we wish we could escape. We hate that this is in our life. But we won't tell anybody. We certainly won't ask for help. Or if we're having a struggle in our life or even Honesty with ourselves about our own need for God to help us and forgive us. Fear. I'm afraid of the consequences. I'm afraid if I admit this thing, how people will view me, how my spouse will treat me. I'm afraid of the initial hurt and pain it will cause if someone hears someone I love, that I'm, I'm doing something or thinking something or involved in something that is going to be very shocking or disappointing. I'm afraid of maybe lost reputation. You know, that's a struggle as as a preacher. You know, that that fear is something you've got to deal with. If I say this, you know, who knows what people are gonna think and whatever, how that might affect how you're viewed. The reality is that we are going to face fear in communication. That doesn't make us a freak, it doesn't make us weird. Fear is something we all have to deal with, with communicating the things that matter the most. God gives us the keys to escape that prison. But we're going to struggle with fear one way or another. And it's going to be with things that matter the most to communicate. And if you look at verse 7, Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. This is all about God's love. And it's all about where I'm putting the emphasis You know, this battle with fear is the battle between pride and humility before the Lord. Because if I begin telling myself self-protective thoughts, and I'm not going to say this because I'm worried about what they'll think, it's about preserving me, my image, protecting myself. And that's going to lower my view of others. It's going to villainize others that if I tell them something, they're going to dislike me, they're going to treat me bad, they're going to react poorly. And so I begin raising my sense of self and lowering my value of others. What is that going to do over time as I begin cultivating that view and raising myself up in subtlety and in quietness? God's love is the key. If I trust God's love, then I know that God will bless me if I'm transparent. God will protect me. He will build fellowship. God is going to build my faith. He's going to restore my soul. He's going to help me escape my struggles and strengthen me. God's going to help me out of the pit of enslaving sins in my life if I just gain the courage in him to communicate. We will struggle between fear and courage. We will. It's just like the Israelites when they went into Canaan and they had to face giants and enemies that were fortified in their cities and weapons. Are we going to look more at the problem? or Are we going to look more at God who holds the solution? And I want to say this as well. It may very well be, it may very well be that we are never closer to God than when we are dealing with a mountain that demands that we seek help from others to navigate. It may be that we are never closer to God than when we are helping someone trust God in the face of a mountain. It's very important that we communicate with people who are struggling or communicate with others when we're struggling but it's also very important that we deal courageously with those who are struggling. We can very easily cultivate the very culture that Jesus is warning against here, where going forward before the church seems like the worst thing in the world, and God forbid you've got to go forward and humiliate yourself. God forbid you have to confess a sin and, you know, just really worry about how someone is going to respond to you. We've got to be very careful about the culture that we cultivate here. And I think too often we don't communicate because honestly, we don't want to fix the problem. We want to protect it. We want it to be kept. And I want to say something that I really want you to listen to how a person responds when a problem in their life is exposed, especially when that problem involves people and they're urged to fix it. How they respond says everything about where their heart is. I want to say that again, because this is really important. How a person responds when a problem is exposed and people are involved and they are urged to fix it. How they respond says everything about where their heart is. And I want to be very clear about what I'm implying there's been a problem here with those that have fallen away. And it's not just here, it's in other places. It's a pattern that a person can easily be, be deceived to think, if I just ask God for, for forgiveness, leave a trail of damaged relationships in my past, but I just, I move on. You know, and I move forward and I don't ask for forgiveness from anybody. I don't talk to them, but I just move on. I've repented. No, absolutely not. That is so fundamentally opposed to the gospel and everything Jesus stood for in his life. If a person will not talk to people they've hurt, people that they're embittered towards, if they will not humble themselves to them, they have not repented. And a person will look for any other way that involves, God forbid, going to that person again. They will look for any other way, and we've got to have the courage to say, you've got to make this right. How a person responds when they're held to accountability for that says everything about where their heart is. Please consider that because that is such a common problem when someone is in sin and it involves people, they will avoid, avoid, avoid going to those people. And especially if they want to cling to an image of godliness, they'll try to say so many things to make it sound like they've, they've moved on with their life and it's all okay. We really need to not be naive about situations like that. Finally, anger and hurt, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. How we we handle anger and hurt feelings has an incredibly profound impact on our hearts and our relationship with God. And again, just please listen, because in my experience and from what I hear from older brethren who have taken careful note of what happens to cause someone to begin to fall away from God, how a person deals with anger and hurt has a profound impact on their relationship with people and God and just the condition of their heart. Hebrews 12 verse 15 says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Bitterness destroys so many souls. We've got to learn to deal with anger and hurt feelings and frustrations. This is something I heard an older brother say and he was quoting some other study. I don't remember what he was quoting, but so I'm I'm quoting him who was quoting someone else. I find this to be very true. A person who is easily offended is also easily manipulated. Look at verse 26 again. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. What is the devil going to do if the sun goes down on your anger? What opportunity are you giving him? To manipulate you, to twist you, to change and darken your mind, to change your view of others, to change your view of God. When we let anger and hurt feelings fester, It gives the devil a wide open door to destroy and to deceive. We're going to deal with anger, you know, and I think that's the thing with verse 26. I think we need to be very convicted by anger. I think we need to be extremely careful with anger. I think we justify anger way too much, but we're going to deal with it. We're going to be angry. If we have any sense of true conviction, we're going to struggle with anger. Again, if we're involved with people like the first point, We're going to deal with frustration with people, disappointments with people, offenses with people. But we've got to learn to not allow the sun go down on our anger and not sin in our anger. And when it says don't let the sun go down on your anger, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to resolve a problem before the sun goes down. But a person can pray, be determined to resolve it, can make peace with God, and determine that they are going to do whatever's needed to reconcile with someone and resolve a problem before the sun goes down. So it doesn't mean that you're gonna be able to like go to a person and get their time or whatever, but it certainly means everything that can be done to not let anger fester. We must not let anger fester. Before we look at 1 John chapter 2, did Jesus have reason to hold on to anger? Do you think he had reason to stay angry at Peter for denying him three times after being warned? Do you think he had reason to hold on to resentment and hurt feelings when the disciples abandoned him at his time of greatest emotional need? Or how about the people who are whipping him? And I just, I imagine in my mind that they were like laughing as they did it, that they were just really trying to get a rise out of Jesus as they were doing it. Do you think he could have harbored hurt feelings about that? What the resurrection teaches us is that Jesus maintained relentless love through it all. And that to be like Christ means learning how to resolve anger and frustration. He's given us the keys. And fundamentally, the gospel is a message of mercy and forgiveness and patience. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. When we let hurt feelings with brethren fester, it leads us down a path of blindness and self-deception. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, to be very clear about this, there's an older brother um, who uh, talks a lot about anger and bitterness because in his view, he's seen it poison so many brethren he loves and has worked with And so he's just thought a lot about this. And something that he says a lot. He says, if you become bitter, it can come to a point where doctrine and truth no longer matter to you. Where you can speak the truth to someone and it doesn't affect them. It doesn't convict them. And I think that's the idea of becoming blind. You're not able to see yourself. You're not able to see God. You have no idea where you're going. And this idea, again, of being easily manipulated, you're you're taken on a path you're unable to see the very next step of where you're going and how far it's going to take you. Hatred nullifies and destroys a person's capacity to hear and be convicted by the truth. We've got to love the brethren. We need strong, Christ-centered relationships with each other. In 1 John, he deals with false teaching. And it seems like there's a very relevant need for this because it seems like there's some false teaching very presently going on that John is dealing with. But in John's estimation, love and truth are inseparable. And if you want to be able to hear the truth and abide in it, then you've got to get love right first. And if love isn't right, truth can't be right either, right? First John chapter 4, 10 through 12. And this is the last scripture we'll look at for the lesson. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Again, ironically, this is in First, first John 4, 1 through 6. He deals with this idea of false teaching and the need to examine teaching. And then he talks about loving one another. Now I want you to notice this. What is God's love like in relation to anger and hurt feelings? God's love is relentlessly merciful. God is constantly looking for ways to overlook transgression, not keep them in mind, not harbor them. God's love is reconciling. God does not just forgive at a distance. This whole idea that I don't have to resolve broken relationships is not from the Bible. God's love is intimate, it's invested. It's reconciling. God just doesn't forgive us from heaven and hope that he doesn't have to deal with us or talk to us or face us one day. And God's love is vulnerable. When Jesus died on the cross, that's God's way of saying, I'm willing to make a mockery of myself to reach you. I'm willing to humiliate myself and look like trash to reconcile with you. And we're not willing to say, I've sinned against you, I'm sorry. What causes that kind of rift between our character and God's? And God's love is self-sacrificing. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God let nothing stand in the way. No cost too great, no gap too distant, nothing would stand in the way of God being the one who was offended. He is not the offender, we are the offenders. And God being the one offended, not only initiates reconciliation, but demonstrates how far he'll go, how much he'll sacrifice before we've done anything. And it's on that basis we have confidence to approach him. Brethren, we have got to learn how to deal with anger and hurt. We are going to deal with it. It is a reality of relationships. As we interact with each other, we're going to offend each other. We're going to frustrate each other and disappoint each other. Again, That it's just a reality of relationships. And that reality is a tool God uses to make us more invested in his grace and mercy. Because our relationships with brethren are our closest bridge, our most intimate avenue to access the riches of his grace. But we have to have a tender heart. We have to have a genuine faith. So I want to encourage you be involved with your brethren. Have strong relationships that you're initiating. Communicate, even when it's hard. Communicate your sin. Confess it. Communicate your struggles, your, needs, your need for help, attitude problems, whatever. Communicate. Don't let it fester. Don't let yourself be trapped in a prison of fear. And when you're confronted with anger and hurt feelings, especially with brethren, be really careful to remember God and focus on him And not on the person who's offended you. Remember how much God has loved you, and remember what He's done with His hurt feelings and what He's done with His anger. That will lead you closer to Him and to your brethren. That's the lesson for this morning. May God help us to have thriving unity in relationships with each other, and to not neglect the warning signs when someone is manifesting problems that could lead to destruction. We need to be watchful, we need to be vigilant. If you're here this morning and there's anything that you need to make known before the church, we reserve a time at the end of our assembly here to bring those things forward.